Hello, and thanks for tuning in to Arena On Air. In this episode, we welcome the director of A Thousand Splendid Sons, Carrie Perloff, and the director of Mother Road, Bill Rausch. If you've ever wondered about the lives of artistic directors, now's your chance to hear the inside scoop. Sit back and enjoy their conversations about theater, career paths, and community. I'm Carrie Perloff. I'm directing A Thousand Splendid Sons. I'm Bill Rausch, and I'm directing Mother Road. Can you talk about how you first got involved in theater? I really wanted to be an actor as a kid, but when I got to college, I directed my first full-length play and uh, realized, oh, this is what I should do. I'm not an actor at all. I'm a terrible actor. And I ended up directing 26 shows as an undergrad because I had found my passion um, in every possible space I could find on campus, traditional theater spaces, funky, uh, you know, the basement of my dorm, uh, the steps of the big library on campus, all over. Um, so that's how I got started. <laughs> I had a very circuitous path to the theater. Uh, strangely, the very first play I ever saw, by the way, was at Arena Stage, because I grew up in Washington as a kid. And Zelda Fitzhandler was my heroine, even though, mm. you know, I, uh, I looked at her from a distance. But I wanted to be an archaeologist all my growing up. Um, and uh, I had done a lot of performing, not as an actor. I did a lot of dance in Washington at American University and that kind of thing. Um, went to Stanford to study ancient Greek and become an archaeologist. Read Greek, learned Greek, read Greek tragedy my first year, and completely fell in love with, with drama that way. I mean, the very first thing I ever directed was um, a scene from Antigone in Greek, which sounds so pretentious. But when you are actually working in a language the audience doesn't know, the most fundamental things about directing uh, get pulled out of you about what is storytelling, what is visual storytelling, what is movement, how does music come into it, what's the scale of an argument, you know? And I still always go back to the Greeks as my touchstone whenever I sort of feel I've lost my way or that there's an issue in the world that I want to wrestle with, I always think it starts with the Greeks. So what excites you about moving forward now that you've come about it in like kind of different directions of where you're going now? Well, I'm so thrilled to come back because this was my home theater. Um, I just quit my day job. <laughs> um, so I've been running a theater since I was 26 years old, ridiculously, but that's just how my life evolved. And I loved it, but I also had this moment where I I thought I was so hungry to just see what it felt like to be an artist in other people's homes. Um, and so I finished my time at ACT after 25 years there, and I've been uh, all over the world working on um, projects I n never would have had a chance to do otherwise. In Dublin, I'm doing a ballet in Helsinki, and I've been at Stratford a lot. Um, and so, uh, you know, right now I'm, I'm hungry to um, find material that feels um, big and juicy to work on, uh, and to really um, be a learner again in other people's institutions, and um, uh, and I'm also doing a lot of my own writing. Well, and you also were an artistic director and still are now in New York, correct? That's correct. So yes. how does that work with also doing your individual projects and being an artistic director? Well, I'm just listening to Carrie with uh, envy. <laughs> because, no more uh, fundraising. I tell you, I've been an artistic director since I was 22, and uh, I'm on my third artistic directorship now with my job in New York at the Perlman Performing Arts Center. And I love being an arts leader um, very much, mm. uh, but I also really, really love to be in the rehearsal room. And uh, the organization that... 
uh, I work for in New York, our building will not be open for another two and a half years. So I'm in an unusual point um, right now because I'm not working as an artist most of the time. Mm. So coming here to Arena is a homecoming in many ways. This is the fourth production I've done here. My first Lort show, my first League of Resident Theater show, mm. was at Arena 26 mm. years ago when we did a community-based uh, adaptation of Christmas Carol called mm-hmm. A Community Carol uh, that we did here at Arena with 50% professional actors from Arena and Cornerstone's companies. Cornerstone was the company I ran at the time, and 50% um, mostly first-time actors from east of the Anacostia River uh, here in D.C., uh, and so to come back again mm-hmm. all these years later for the fourth time is a homecoming. And just being back in the rehearsal room is uh, mm-hmm. such a source of joy for me right now. For some of our listeners who are new to theater or don't really know the difference between being a director and being an artistic director, mm. can you all kind of explain what that is? <laughs> the artistic director is where the buck stops with everything. So you're the CEO <laughs> and you have to choose the season, cast the season, design the season, hire the artist, raise the money, hire the staff. I mean, you have partnerships in doing that, but ultimately the entire artistic direction of an organization and its relationship to a community rests on your shoulders, Mm -hmm. Um, which means with every project, you also have to contextualize it. So, you know, how is it marketed? How is it um, invested in the community? How do you write about it? When you're directing, you are in the room and your job day to day to day is to realize that particular show in the envelope of the institution in which you're working. You both spent many years with your organizations you were with, Carrie at ACT. Um, you founded Cornerstone, and then you moved on to the next thing. Co-founded it, yeah. Co-founded it, yes. So can you both talk about a little bit about what your goals were for each of those organizations coming in and kind of how you saw those realized over your time with the organization? I mean, I fell into a theater <laughs> that I love very much and still love very much in New York called CSC, the Classic Stage Company. And I was looking back the other day trying to remember how I even got that job. And I think, you know, women often <laughs> get handed things that are completely destroyed. CSC was bankrupt and hadn't paid its payroll taxes and was in receivership. And so that's when I got handed it. And I knew nothing and I'd never prepped to be an artistic director. And so, you know, you make it up as you go along. And I know you did this at Cornerstone, which you founded. So you did that brilliantly. I, I wanted to keep the classics alive. I feel really strongly and I still feel really strongly that if we lose connection with our own history, we become shallower and shallower and we end up sort of where we are today. And so I understand that there are contentious issues about what counts as the canon. And I think it's fantastic that we're blasting the canon open. But I don't think that we should, in our um, appetite for new work, forget that we are standing on the shoulders of very ancient history. And so that was my goal at, at CSC in an intimate setting to try and find a way that great literature, whether it was Brecht or Lorca or the Greeks or Shakespeare or whatever, or you could stay alive. Um, and and the other goal was survival. And you know, this is a thing about institutions. They're very, very fragile. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have to think all the time, why am I trying to keep that alive? Um, at ACT, because ACT was so deeply education-based, right? It was the only freestanding MFA program in America. My goal was to try and see if I could keep Bill Ball's original 
spark alive. I never knew him. And again, ACT was bankrupt when I came in the theater land ruins from the earthquake. So part of it was rebuilding. But part of it was saying, what is lifelong learning? What does it mean to train in the theater? Why did he have that idea? And if it was a great idea, how can I help serve that and sustain it and move it forward into the 21st century? With Cornerstone, uh, we when I was in college, we heard a damning statistic that only 2% of the American people went to professional mm -hmm. theater on anything approaching a regular basis. And I was very disturbed by that statistic. And so my friends and I who started Cornerstone really wanted to uh, proactively try to reach the other 98% of people who lived in this country. So we started working in isolated rural communities, uh, putting on plays with community-based artists in those communities. And then we moved to Los Angeles to do the same work in urban communities. And uh, what was remarkable about the Arena Project was it was the first time that we were invited in mm. by one of the cultural palaces, as it were, one of the mm. you know large budget, substantial institutions, but to work on our terms in terms of celebrating community. So it was a it was a really significant moment. Mm. And uh, I loved Carrie hearing you talk about um, thinking about Bill Ball's legacy. Uh, at ACT because I, w when I moved to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival after 20 years with Cornerstone, I was very mindful of the founder, Angus Bomer, who had founded the theater in 1935, and his populist vision about the classics being accessible uh, to people from all walks of life, and that really moved me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think, like you, I was moved by a commitment to the classics as well as new work, and how do we have those talking to each other, because every classic was a new play at some point. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel that so many of the great works of dramatic literature came out of company settings. So the fact that the Oregon Shakespeare Festival has the largest resident acting company in the country um, that felt very, very exciting to me. You both mentioned the classics and how dedicated you were to keeping those alive, and now you're both working on shows that are rooted in classic novels and pieces that people grew up reading either in school or on their own. Why were you so passionate about taking these shows? rooted in these novels and bringing them to the stage. Khaled Husseini, who wrote Thousand Splendid Sons, lives in the Bay Area. And I had been doing um, other Middle Eastern work. I did a play by Wajdi Moed called Scorched um, by a Lebanese can uh, Canadian from living in Montreal. And he came to see that. And we went out and had an amazing um, dinner. And I had just read Sons. And I said to him after a few drinks, sort of kiddingly, would you ever let me develop a play based on A Thousand Splendid Sons. And he said, absolutely, but this time it has to be really theatrical and I can't be involved. I don't know theater. So I've seen all your work. Just go for it. And so I commissioned, uh, I wanted a woman and I wanted someone from that part of the world. And I actually thought it might be good if it was someone who was thousands of miles away so that she wouldn't be intimidated by Holland. Not that he's intimidating. He is the most generous, kind, extraordinary man. But, you know, it's an amazing novel. And the problem with novel adaptations, and we've all worked on a lot of them, is that uh, the shape and time sequence of a novel is completely different from dramatic time. And if you actually try and too faithfully follow the novel, it often ends up being quite leaden theater. So I wanted Ursula Rami Sarna, who is the uh, playwright and adapter, to kind of have free reign to create a theatrical piece out of that. And when I flew to London to meet with her, we both had the same page of the book marked, which is actually halfway through the book at the bombing at the moment the two women meet. And that's where we started our play, because mm -hmm. we 
decided the spine of the play was the friendship between those two women. But in the end, you know, uh, it always comes back to the kind of incredible resilience of the human spirit. And uh, reading right now about Syrian women or going to the Sackler Freer Gallery here in Washington and seeing that exhibition of Iranian women photographers, which I highly recommend if you haven't seen it, it is absolutely always incredible to me that in the wake of, as, as Bill said, trauma and complexity and pain, it, amazing creativity happens uh, and joy and resilience in the face of it. Um, and we often don't see that. Mm -hmm. And that that was really the joy of Building Sons, was to see whether at the end of the play, some kind of new family could be built that moved forward, not to negate what they'd gone through, but to actually hope that there was a path forward. I had never read or seen the movie of The Grapes of Wrath, shockingly. So I got to know Octavio's play on its own terms mm. and fell deeply in love with it. And then when I was truly humbled when he, when he asked me to direct it, um, I, of course, read the novel uh, <laughs> that it was inspired by and I saw the, the great Henry Fonda uh, mm. film, John Ford film, and uh, was even more moved and more excited. Octavio has very, very cleverly uh, crafted a plot that springs from the novel, but I think it's the thematic resonance, the, the uh, moral outrage at economic injustice, mm -hmm. uh, and the longing for uh, a society that is rooted in justice. Uh, that I think Steinbeck and Solis share in such a beautiful way, in such a moving mm. way. I think that Octavio's play uh, is such a moving meditation on how our country is transitioning from a white majority society to a people of color majority. Mm. And uh, I, I think it's something that um, playwrights have rarely dealt with with as much subtlety and as much love as I feel like Octavio does. Mm. It's, quite, it's quite something. Mm. It's amazing. Is there a novel that you would love to adapt or would love to see adapted for the stage that has not yet You know, I, I've wrestled with many of these um, and, uh, and started projects and abandoned them and thought about them. And uh, there's still one. There's a contemporary San Francisco gay novelist called Andrew Sean Greer. I don't know if you know this writer. Um, he won the Pulitzer last year for a different novel, but he wrote this novel called The Story of a Marriage. And I can't figure out how to bring it to the stage because it has a secret. But I'll tell the secret on the podcast because why not? It's this strange <laughs> marriage. It takes place in the 50s in San Francisco, um, way out in the avenues where, uh, you know, it was quite abandoned near the beach um, in San Francisco. And um, it's a woman who's passing, but you don't know she's passing. You find out 50 pages into the book that she's actually African-American. And she's married to a man that she met before the war. And they have a son who has polio and the the it turns out it's a strange marriage of convenience he's gay and later in the novel you meet the man that he met overseas and the pieces of it are so subtle and so he's the most amazing writer and I talked to Frank Galati about it and I, t I kept trying to figure out how because uh, one of my missions at ACT was to do San Francisco stories and I did many kinds of stories we did after the war by Philip Gotanda that was about Japanese Americans in the internment camps. We did Lorenzo Pizzoni's humor abuse about the Pickle Family Circus and mm -hmm. clowning in San Francisco and all kinds of things in between. Tales of the City we adapted, a novel we adapted. But this one has eluded me. 
But I love it, and, I, and uh, I'm still thinking about it. But you're a writer as well. I know, but you know, I never, I don't ever direct my own stuff, and I always ever, think it's ever? better. You never have. I no, but um, no, I love collaboration, and as a writer, I feel the privilege of having that other mind. I love that other voice saying, "It could be this. You could move the scene here. What about that?" Which I think, when you direct your own work, you don't have. I really love collaboration. I love being in the room, mm-hmm. so I need that. Yes, it's the most beautiful part of theater. And then you're not alone. After you know, I write first draft, second draft, third drafts at the computer. But there's a moment where you have to give it over and say, "What can you make of this?" And what you learn as you get older, which is so humbling and funny when you've been in this field so long, is that no matter how strong you think a play is, it's just a blueprint for an experience. The last play that uh, I was lucky enough to direct here at Arena was Row by Lisa Loomer, mm-hmm. and we w- we had done it in Ashland to great acclaim for several months. We opened it at Arena, and then a few weeks into the run, Norma McCorvey, uh, who of course was uh, mm-hmm. Jane Roe, um, one of the two leading characters in the play, died in real life. And uh, the actor called me tearfully and said, what do I do? I have to go out and, and be Norma. And she, and she died today. Mm. And I don't, I don't know how to, I, I don't know what to do. And um, What we, a tribute, though. We, it was a remarkable. And she, she stepped forward. And because she had died, um, uh, I think, during the show or shortly before the show began, most of the audience did not know that mm. she died. And so the woman who was playing her had to step forward and tell the audience that she had died mm. today. And then Lisa did a rewrite to acknowledge the death in the play because the play was predicated mm. on the fact that these two women were alive, Sarah Weddington and Norma McCorvey, mm. uh, appearing in a play together. So anyway, uh, when you talk about mm. it's always different based on what's going on in the world... Oh. Speaking of current events, I stepped off the train in Union Station, and I walked out of Union Station to get a cab. And, of course, D.C. is laid out so methodically that the Capitol building was right there, framed right in my view as I walked out the door. And I was so mindful that the next day uh, the Senate impeachment trial was beginning and that we were beginning Mother Road. Uh, I think there are many ways that it resonates in terms of looking at who we are as a nation, uh, but certainly the theme of immigration. It's 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 such you know the the main character Martin Jodes is is uh, first generation. His mom was born uh, in Mexico and was undocumented, and everything that is happening um, in in this uh, fraught, terrible, terrible time resonates with this story. And what do you hope the DC audiences specifically are going to get out of it? What are they going to leave asking or questioning or thinking about or bringing back to their friends and family and saying? I mean, I think they're already asking those questions. It's an incredibly engaged and smart audience here. I mean, I always thought we were totally blessed in San Francisco that we had this really muscular, opinionated, literate, very mixed audience. But I've been amazed at the previews here, you know, that it's been packed with very different kinds of people and uh, I sat next to a woman last night who had uh, been in the State Department in Afghanistan in 1968 mm. and wow. and then a young African American woman on the other side of me who knew the book by heart but the people in front of me had never read the book and you could feel all the different reactions um, 
I hope, I mean, what I always felt about Thousand Splendid Sons is that it would give another lens onto a country that we only see through the news media in one way, which is we only hear about Afghanistan when there's another bombing or another uh, corrupt politician <laughs> or another disaster with the Taliban. But the things about, for example, it's a country that has an incredible poetry tradition, visual arts tradition, and that's why we wanted to start the play reading this poem and having it be really beautiful, that it isn't just war-torn, it's not just violent, that there is a legacy there um, that's really pungent and important to remember that you don't read in the news. And I also wanted to foreground the women because I think that is what you don't read about. Um, and they always seem to be behind closed doors or behind veils. But what women have actually accomplished in Afghanistan is um, remarkable and um, that I hope people actually um, really get inside the lives of those women. Um, and and go on that journey with them and come out of it um, with a different lens on the way that we think about Middle Eastern culture. Uh, I, I do think W's play really gets at the heart of where we are right now as a society and where we might head. And uh, I, I think there is no more important story to share in our nation's capital right now, frankly. Obviously, you both very heavily prize community in theater and theater's ability to build community and affect community and be in dialogue with the community. How would you kind of define the importance of that relationship between theater and community? And how do you see that moving forward in your work as a freelance director, Carrie, and in New York with the Pearlman? Well, community has been at the center of my life as an artist and as an arts leader. Um, Cornerstone was a community-based theater, our, our primary uh, artistic methodology was to collaborate with first-time artists in both rural and urban communities. Uh, so it's a word that um, has been at the center of my practice my whole life. Um, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, it was interesting because there was the, there is, because uh, OSF is thriving um, under new leadership, Nataki Garrett. I'm so thrilled um, that she is there. Uh, but uh, OSF has the community of that resident acting company and of all the artists and the artisans and the administrators who live in Ashland uh, and the Rogue Valley community uh, where the company resides. Uh, but the majority of the audience uh, are tourists. 85% of the audience comes from hundreds of miles away mm. from Carrie's former mm -hmm. stomping grounds mm -hmm. and from LA and from Seattle and mm. Sacramento and really all over the country and either other parts of the world but, but primarily up and down the West Coast. So uh, I really learned a lot about a redefinition of community because people who, who came by their grandparents their grandparents brought them decades ago, mm. and now they're bringing their grandchildren. And that tradition being passed down through families of we go to Ashland, we are on pilgrimage to experience art, to be together, a mm. group of friends, a group of family, uh, that particular expression of community was quite moving to me and still is. Uh, in New York, uh, of course, my great uh, disadvantage, but you hope your disadvantage is also your advantage <laughs> in some way, is that I'm not a New Yorker. I've lived in New York a few times briefly in my life, but this is the first time that I will do an extended um, uh, stay in New York as a resident. Um, so I need to get to know the many communities um, that make up our city. Uh, I 
my deepest hope, um, my strongest aspiration for the Perlman is that it become a place that welcomes community and that people from all walks of life in New York mm -hmm. um, feel, see themselves reflected in the work and feel comfortable in that building. Mm -hmm. And given that it is uh, a gorgeous marble cube that's being built at the World Trade Center, um, for it to be truly open to multiple communities, I think is, is a, a tall order, but I think it's the work that we have to do. I think it's our responsibility and our opportunity. You know, I go back to Zelda. I mean, I, the few times I really remember listening to Zelda as a child, I thought, you know, she was so woven into the life of this city and so ubiquitous. You sort of saw her all over the place. and. Um, that she was like a cultural mayor, you, you know what I mean? Mm. And everything she wrote, I ended up reading. And because, you know, as a, as a woman, there were so few people at that time that I could navigate after. I felt like I was sort of in her, following in her wake. Um, and, uh, you know, when I went to San Francisco, I, I realized by default that one of the ways I ended up in the community was through my children. Because, uh, you know, that's what you care about. And you meet their par the parents of their friends, and they are from every different walk of life and they don't know anything about theater and that's not why they're there and you start to hear what people really think and, and I think the most important thing in making theater is not to just be in the bubble of you know the feedback loop of theater critics and theater professionals and but but actually what is out there what are people really interested in and what are the issues about how people live and um, raise their children and try to get to work and try to find work and try to find beauty in their lives and wrestle with their immigration status and all of those things and so um, that was sort of my pleasure in San Francisco was was um, it, trying to always wander that city. And I would just walk and think, who lives here? And what about this neighborhood? And, and, and why are these children not coming to our young conservatory? So how, do, how does that happen? Or do we bring the young conservatory to the Bayview? You know, community is a fascinating thing because it shrinks and grows depending on whether you're talking about the community that you hold within the rehearsal room, which is a very sacred thing, or the community of um, that ricochets around these pebbles that we're dropping in a pond, which are the plays that we're making. And it's just one little little gesture in the world to make a play and drop that sort of pebble in the pond and see what the ripples are and and hope that communities out there um, embrace it. Thank you both so Thank much. I really appreciate it. Wonderful. Great questions. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed another episode of Arena on Air. If you liked what you heard, please tag, comment, and subscribe. And remember to use the hashtag Arena on Air. Don't miss A Thousand Splendid Sons, directed by Carrie Perloff, now playing through March 1st, and Mother Road, directed by Bill Rausch, now playing through March 8th. As always, a huge thank you to our fellows, Caroline Austin, Tristan Evans, J.P. McLaurin, and Brandon Pilar, for their help in this production of the show. Without them, none of this is possible.